the evening's readings as well as tomorrow obviously are the culmination of the whole Pascha week. And it's the night and morning where everything that could go wrong on the planet went wrong. And that God came to the earth, and as St. John says at the beginning of his gospel, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. And this wasn't something that he was ignorant of. He knew that this was going to happen, which makes the meaning of his sacrifice um, even deeper. I want to explain some of the history to understand what is going on, because if you don't understand it, then the trial and all the stuff that happens in the morning and, and the last hour that we read at night probably won't make any sense to you or you'll just treat it like a story and it, it's not just a story. It has a context and a, and a real one. We've talked many times about the history of the Jews, the history of humanity. We talked about all of that. And we talked about how the Lord gave them a kingdom. And as we said, as the kingdoms, and this is what we've been reading about the whole week, that's why all the readings were about these things, as the kingdoms went astray and as the kingdoms rejected their God more and more, then the Lord gave them up to their own will. And so they were taken captive by the Babylonians. So in the year 538 B.C., a proclamation by King Cyrus of Persia, who was the first to take them over, permitted some of the exiles, so some of the Jews that had been forced into exile in Babylon, permitted them to return to Jerusalem. And it was during this period that they built the temple again, because the temple had been ransacked and destroyed. And to the Jews, the focal point of all religion for the Jews is the temple, and it's supposed to still be until this day. And so, without the temple, there's no sacrifice. Without the temple, there's not a living priesthood. Without the temple, they don't have a living faith. So the temple, for them, is the focal point. So the destruction of the temple was a, a symbolic gesture to them in the sense of God has, has forsaken us, or God has abandoned us, and also that we're not free to practice. And that's why their natural response in, in captivity was to pray a lot, asking for, for God's mercy. And so when these exiles returned, they started building the temple again, and the leaders of this time, hopefully as we all know, are Ezra and Nehemiah. Those two books are about the rebuilding of the temple. And as the leader and governor of Jerusalem, Nehemiah actually made every family in Judah send some members of their family to Jerusalem to repopulate so that it could become a Jewish state again. And they went this obviously not just religiously but secularly and politically. They wanted to reestablish the kingdom that they had lost when they were taken over by the Persians and by the Babylonians. And what he did obviously was rebuild the the temple. That's what the whole the whole book of Nehemiah is about. And he also did this under great stress because the, the enemies were constantly around ready to stop the construction of, of the temple. And the book of Malachi, which is the last book written in the Old Testament, um, was written around this time, right, at the very close of it. And then there's no more prophets, as we said. For 400 years, no one's talking. There's just 
a lot of stuff going on and this stuff that's going on is what I want to talk about because it's what set the scene for all of these issues that are that are taking place tonight when Alexander the Great died he split his empire into three kingdoms and each one was ruled by one of his generals and Jerusalem was originally under the Ptolemies of Egypt okay so originally Israel fell under Egyptian jurisdiction but Egypt had been Hellenized which meant that under Alexander the Great it had the great it had a very Greek culture to it so it had Greek arts Greek dance Greek religion Greek customs Greek morality everything and so it was a, it was basically almost what we say today when we say things have been Americanized when we export American culture so Parts of Judea had become Hellenized, and this created a serious conflict within the Jewish community. There were those who were all four being these Greco-Jews, and there were those that were seen as traditionalists, um, who said that we ought not to take anything from Greek culture. And so they were constantly fighting with one another. One of the leaders that came during that period went and retook over the temple and actually offered a sacrifice, I believe, of pigs um, on the altar, right, which was meant to be a, a complete sign of, of desecration to the Jews because they knew that the Jews obviously have restrictions on pork um, and erected, I believe, a statue of one of the Greek gods in his place. And this is one of the things that we refer to as the abomination of desolation, of calling where something is something profane sits in the seat of the holy. And so there began a period of revolts, and this is what the four book of Maccabees are about, is they start revolting against their Greek leaders, they start fighting against Hellenized Jews, and um, as we mentioned in one of the, the talks this week, one in particular, Judah Maccabee, was very successful um, in his revolt of getting the Hellenists out of the temple, and was hailed as a hero, and that in, in their eyes, he had restored the temple to be a spiritual center again for the Jews. So this was a really big deal for them, and it still is, and it's what they celebrate as the Feast of Hanukkah in the Jewish tradition. And so there began, there began another period of Jewish political independence in Jerusalem. And I emphasize here the word political. Then, of course, the Romans take over. And when the Romans take over, there's some areas that they allowed for these Hellenized Jews that we just talked about to rule, and there are other areas that were ruled by a Roman prefect. And where that comes into play, as we're going to see in the morning, is why Herod is in charge of an area, and why Pilate is in charge of another area. Because the area that Herod is in charge of, it's called it was called the Tetrarch, is that four is put into to four includes Galilee which is where our Lord was was from and a few other regions that were not under Pilate's jurisdiction within these areas the Jews were allowed to some extent to practice their own laws right it would almost if you think about it, it would almost be like if an Islamic group today were allowed to practice Sharia under specific guidelines okay in certain regions that's what they were allowed to do but they were restricted Okay, so the Jews, for example, were not permitted 
to issue a death penalty, even if their law called for for stoning or death, they weren't allowed to put people to death, which we're going to see, obviously, in the in the dialogue um, between the Jews when they meet up with Pilate, when he's asking them, why are you even coming to me? So, this background of constant fighting between the Jews and among themselves, and the Jews with the Romans and the Jews with their what they saw as occupants made the province of Judea a real thorn in the emperor's side, right? Is that the emperor wasn't excited about what was coming out of Jerusalem, right? What he cared about from that region in general was that Egypt's corn and wheat <laughs> makes its way to Rome, right? And that people are paying their taxes because the, the taxes and the revenue were the source of of income, a big source of income for the Roman Empire. And anyone who's read about Roman history, and I encourage you to do so, there's a few wonderful books, some of them written as, as fiction. It'll make you really understand the world of the Gospel a lot better. To understand there's a whole lineup of, of five emperors in a row that are the backdrop of, of the early church. And anyone who reads about them will find that they're not a, a really friendly people. If the emperor doesn't like you, it's not like you would just get fired, you'd probably just get killed. Um, and so taking on a, a, a position of power was as, as petrifying as it was flattering because you knew that your end was, statistically speaking, not, not usually going to be a good one. Either someone wants to get rid of you to take your place or the emperor doesn't like him, gets rid of you. Not, not many leaders died natural deaths, or at least from the early emperors. And so they're always living in some kind of fear. And anybody who was assigned a position of power was always afraid of who the next emperor would be, because the next emperor could just kill all of the previous person's rulers, because all the emperors were ruling that any very kind of prosperous governor might be trying to start an insurrection himself to become a Caesar. This is a constant thing going on in the backdrop. And so because of this, Pilate is under immense pressure because there's unrest, right, in his jurisdiction, unrest from people who are known to start rebellions, and unrest from people who, if they get really loud, after the Maccabean revolt and after all that they had seen come out of Judea, Basically, one of the books says that Pilate had a on on him that if if I hear a peep coming out of there, like it's your life that I'm going to require, and I'll send someone more competent than you. So Pilate had an immense pressure on him to try and and keep the peace. So Pilate is in charge of what we call Roman Judea, okay, or or Judea. They just used to differentiate it from um, what Herod is in charge of in Judea. During this time also emerged a specific group that we read about a lot, a lot, a lot, which are the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had a particular rule. They emerged out of two things. One is after they went into captivity, they understood that because they had not followed the ordinances of their God, that this was why the Lord had forsaken them. And so they felt the need to learn the ordinances inside out. They were, if you will, the, the Jewish lawyers, okay, where they, they knew the constitution inside out. And they, they were seen as the official interpreters of the law. 
And this probably got even more prestigious during the Hellenization period, where there is a strong movement of traditionalism, right, of saying we want to keep our identity. And it's not hard. We go through this culturally. Every culture that emigrates, you'll see this happen in their cultures, right, is that there's going to be this, this asking and, and pulling back and forth of what do I take from this culture, what do I leave from this culture, what are the rules, what are they saying, who's in charge, and it's, it's not a comfortable place to be, and it causes confusion. So you'll find some people who are extreme liberals, right, of saying whatever they do is good for me, right? You have another person who's like, I won't do a single thing that they're doing, right? I won't even speak their language. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create my corner here. And you've got people all over and in between in the spectrum. And so this is what they're going through, right? So the Pharisees would have been mostly aligned with the most of the traditionalists of saying, this is who we are, we are not changing no matter who comes and who goes, which of course had its merits um, and also had its, its flaws. And so they had their roles very prominently. During this early period around when our Lord would have been born, Annas was made was the high priest of the temple. So the, the priests were of course only from the tribe of Levi, set aside by the Lord, as saying this is the one tribe, right, that is permitted to be priests. And he was made a high priest, but for some reason he was fired by the Romans, which suggests that there was some contention between him and the Romans, because they actively stepped in to remove him. Having said that, he was clearly also very powerful, because five of his kids became high priests after him, one of whom is Caiaphas, uh, well, his, his son-in-law is, is Caiaphas. And it's also clear that they had a respect for him because that's why they're sending him to Annas first, even though legally speaking, he wasn't the high priest. And John, John had ties to the temple, the, John the Apostle, St. John. And so that's why only in his gospel do we get these inside glimpses of the details. It appears to be, if you look at the other gospel accounts, not John's, you'll find it just says they go to Caiaphas, right? And John says, no, they go to Annas first because John would have had inside access to be allowed to go to these things because of his blood relationships to these tribes. And so what appears to have happened is that he was, our Lord was first taken to Annas's house before he was brought before the actual official Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is the last thing I think that I'll explain from, from that, which is the equivalent of our Holy Synod today. Okay, so the Sanhedrin is, is their magma mukaddas. The Sanhedrin is made up of the priests. It's also made up of Pharisees um, and people of prominence who know the law. And they would be gathered together to judge somebody and put them on trial to figure out what it is. Pharisee actually means to divide, to discern, right? It's, it's got a similar meaning to the function of a bishop, right? That we, we pray in the liturgy for the, the Pope and the bishops to rightly divide the word of truth, right? So we're asking the Lord to allow them to rightly Pharisee, um, is, is what we're doing. So the, the actual intention and meaning of a Pharisee is a very good thing, right? It was just where it went wrong. So I want you to all realize that because if you don't understand that dynamic and the pushes and the pulls, you won't know why Pilate caves in so easily and doesn't just stand up for, for truth. You won't know why what the Jews said carried more weight than it, would, than it would appear. And what the people are waiting for, the Jewish people, 
in this and all of that and underneath all of this noise is they're waiting for a ruler right they're waiting for the messiah to come and they're hoping that this messiah is going to come and officially just get rid of all of the occupiers we don't want greeks we don't want romans we don't want anybody we want this to be once again a jewish nation and so this is what they're anticipating and this is why so often they're completely confused by the things that our Lord says. Because they're like, what, what is this fluff? Right? Like, where's your army? Right? Like, you can't, you can't hug them away. Right? You're going to need to fight. So they're, they're very frustrated sometimes, and they're very confused. The only people who are, are liking him are the victims of society. Right? The only ones that are liking him are the ones that are, are not in this power circle that are vying for, for redemption and liberation because they're the ones who are actually listening to what he said, right? The rest were listening for what they wanted to hear, and when they didn't hear it, threw him away. So as we said, the Sanhedrin had no authority to put anyone to death. They need a Roman conviction for this, and for that they need a political buy-in for that to occur. So pay attention in the morning, because as we ended here with only the, the standing before the Jewish uh, Sanhedrin, of what the Jews use to have conversation with Pilate. Rome doesn't want an insurrection again, as we said, and Pilate's life will be on the line. And Pilate's in a position where he can't stand the Jews, right? It's not like he has a fondness for them himself. Right, because there's this constant noise in the background that may cost him his life. So he doesn't have a deep fondness for them. He's actually probably frustrated even by the refusal that we'll see in the morning for them to talk to him. Where they're like, nope, we're going to stand on the outside because if we touch you or if we enter your courts, we're defiled. Right, so they're even, right, they're annoying him. Right, they're saying, come out and meet us where, where we are. And the truth is, Pilate probably knew at least as much, if not more, than the Jews about Jesus. Because of the fear for his own life, any kind of noise that's coming up, he's going to have his men on it, right? If there's a, a Jew who's rallying the people as a messianic figure, because he is very aware of this messianic promise that they're looking for, he's going to hit the radar, right? Because they don't want somebody to cause him his death. And most likely, as we see from his behavior, he just doesn't want to deal with this situation. Which also means he's probably not taking it that seriously, meaning that he knows, just as well as the Jews knew, that there was nothing to fear from Christ in terms of political threat. There was clearly nothing to fear about it. And that's why he didn't want to deal with it and why he ends up sending him to somebody else. But the irony of this night is not even in, in all of that. That's the, that's the backdrop, that's the noise, that's the world in which all this is happening. The irony is, is, as we said at the beginning, is that he came unto his own and his own knew him not. The only thing, the only thing that recognized its creator this night and tomorrow is nature. Nature is the only thing that visibly and physically protested 
the wrongness of what was going on. Only nature actually loudly decried what happened, right? That the earth shook, that the sun hid its rays, that the rays of the, that the veil of the temple tore in twain, that there is an earthquake, that there is an eclipse, that all of these things happened. Only nature recognized its creator truly, like in, its, in his identity as God. Others may have suspected it, others may have had loyalties, but no one recognized him as God. Even the devil was completely and monumentally confused, right? The devil is, is looking at the scenario, trying to figure out who is this man? Is he the Messiah? Isn't he? Is he God or isn't he? On the one hand, he's raising the dead. On the other hand, he cries. On the one day, he, he, he's hungry. And on another day, he's multiplying food on his own command. Who is he? So he didn't know. And if he knew, he probably would have worked a lot harder to stop it instead of working so hard to kill him. We see, of course, in this night the betrayal of the disciples on many levels, right? We, we think of Judas, I feel badly for Judas, but all the disciples betrayed him during that night. The first betrayal was, was a, maybe a modest betrayal, but it's where our Lord asked the disciples and said, Will you please stay up with me? And it says in the Gospels that he's in agony. And so he asks them, Can you please stay up with me? In, his, in the fullness of humanity, the Lord is looking for some companionship from his friends. And they go to sleep. Three times they go to sleep. Every time that he comes back to them, he finds them asleep. And I'm sure that when they saw his face, it was clear that he was in agony. I don't think he came back smiling and saying, why are you asleep? Right? He's, he's praying so deeply that blood is coming out as sweat. And yet this isn't enough to move these so-called friends of his to say, it looks like you're going through a lot. Maybe we don't get it. We don't, we don't get it completely. But if that's what you need, we'll stay up with you. They betrayed him as friends. Then we see Judas his own friend, someone that he chose, right? Somebody who was part of the inner circle, somebody who he gave responsibility to, right? Judas was the treasurer, so he was he was a, a, a man of, of position within the circle of, of Christ. And I'm sure in the prestigious days where Christ was a big thing, it's probably something he could show off like, yeah, I'm the I'm the treasurer, right? The on the council. And not only does he betray him. But he betrays him in a familiar place. I don't know if you paid attention, but it was repeated multiple times that Gethsemane was a place that it says that our Lord retreated too often with his disciples. So it was a place of intimacy with them. It was a place that they would go off on their own to avoid the crowds, to have quiet time just with one another. Right? So it's it's like coming into your friend's best your best friend's home when you're betraying him, right? You didn't even do it from a distance. You went into a place where you have something that you shared that was intimate. And then, doesn't betray him with just a, a random signal. It's to go up to him and give him a kiss, right? Which is unspeakable. And then the disciples abandon him in his, in his hour of need. Right? In the hour when 
if there's a time to show loyalty, this this would have been the hour, right? It's not when he's doing miracles, it's when everybody is suddenly turning on him, right? The same person that they observed more than anyone else doing the miracles, because they were all there. They all saw those miracles. You would think that like the, the strong friend at this point would be like, no, I'll testify, I was there, I saw it. What are they going to say to it? I, I was there. They can't argue with that there are witnesses. But they all flee. Even the founder of our church, right, fled naked in the garden. That story in St. Mark, that reference that he makes is about himself, right? Is that the, the guards seized him and they removed his cloak. And the Last Supper was even in his own home. Even our, the founder of our church was one of those who in the hour of need left our Lord on his own. And that's why pay attention to the Psalms, right? There is none to comfort me. All alone I tread the winepress. Then there's Peter, right? The intimate friend. And Peter at least put in a little face, right? Peter at least was following from a distance. But he didn't have the fortitude to hold his ground. And the same person who so rashly and so loudly proclaimed that he would never betray him and even had the temerity to say if anyone is offended by you it's not going to be me those other disciples maybe which is an insult to them because he said it in front of them right where it's like yeah maybe those guys will but i won't right and yet he he did it so defiantly and so boldly and with such conviction right that he didn't just say no it wasn't me he swore that he had nothing to do with the Lord his God. And then we see the betrayal of those in the marketplace. You almost can hear like that gossipy old lady <laughs> sitting in front of the temple who's pointing at Peter over and over, where she's excited, right? Of like, no, you're one of them, right? And she keeps pushing and pushing and pushing, right? Of like, no, 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 you, I, you have the accent. Don't even try and deny it. And she keeps doing it. I wouldn't shock me if the same lady was probably at his talks before and attending his miracles and singing his praise, right? And suddenly it's just go with the flow. Today he's a bad guy. All right, he's a bad guy. Let's help round up the troops. Where's the winning side, right? I'll join the winning side. And so you see even the commoner, right? The commoner is participating in this betrayal of, of their God. Those same people, as we said on Sunday, who said Hosanna, are now trying to find a way to have this man killed. The same person who were treating him as a king because, again, they wanted a political king, are now rejecting him. And then you have, and we don't consider this often, the betrayal of the rulers. And people might not consider it a betrayal because they might not have understood, in our view, everything that was going on. But it's a betrayal because we sometimes forget that every single person here in this story is a child of God, right? Every single one of them is His creation, including the emperor, including the governor, including the Gentiles, and including the Jews. And so even this earthly power that they received by the grace of God that He allowed them to have, they used and abused against Him because they didn't recognize their true King. 
And then, because I'm going to save the the most, in my opinion, horrible, not most horrible, but most moving to me, the betrayal of those in the temple will come to the priests right after, of these people who work in the temple, the ones who are slapping Christ, the ones who are blindfolding him, the ones who are kicking him, the ones who are jeering him, right? As Christ himself said to them, You've heard me so many times speak in this place. There's nothing that I did secretly. There's nothing that I've said or done that you should see as a surprise. This has always been who I am. And yet today you come at me, slapping me and punching me and abusing me. What did I do to you? Right? This is a great betrayal of the truth. Because they knew the truth because they saw it. And not only did they know the truth and see it, but they lied. Right? They were trying to come up with a story to get him killed. They were searching for it. And the Jewish law was, unless you have two or three witnesses agreeing completely on the story, you can't hold the person accountable. You can't put them to death. And so every time somebody would come up with a lie, the second guy would come, and his lie would be a different lie than the first guy, and so they couldn't use it. Right? That's actually the reason for the frustration of the high priest, of saying... What are we going to get him on? He's finally in our hands and we can't even find this, which is why we'll see Christ's proclamation in a moment. But one of the most shameful, I think, betrayals is the betrayal of the priests. You know, the Pharisees maybe had some justification because their trade was to be legal. Right, Their trade was legalism, and they were coming from a place of we lost our religion because we didn't follow the law. So if this guy doesn't do exactly what we're doing, then he might cost us something. There, there might be some rationale, even though it's, it's wrong, even though they didn't realize that. But the high priests, their job was to worship God. Their job was to teach the people. Their job was to interpret the scripture. Their job was to be on guard for the Messiah. That was their job. And they failed miserably. And they didn't just fail because they didn't understand. They failed because they were threatened by him. They failed because all the accusations that they're having are about one thing. The temple. Because the temple is where they have power. And they didn't want to share power. And so that's why they were most angry about it, of saying, what do you mean by threatening the temple? What do you mean by claiming authority over the temple? In doing so, it means that you're saying that I don't have authority over the temple. Which means that these stewards of God really put themselves in God's place. They didn't see themselves as stewards anymore, they saw themselves as the gods. And so they didn't want to know who the Messiah is. They would probably only have accepted a Messiah if it came from among them. And most likely if the Messiah came from among them, they'd probably go the route of the emperor tradition of killing people. Because that's what they did. They did that already in their history when they had kings. Kings did slay other kings. People did rise up against each other because the people wanted power. And there's an interesting document that I came across today I was very excited to find. It's just one paragraph in Jewish sources that I didn't know about before today.
especially with there's a a small group, not a big group of atheists who try and con and 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 argue that Jesus never existed at all. But they have a document where they actually name Christ, and they say that he was hanged on Passover Eve. They they don't acknowledge the crucifixion, and they said it was for him practicing sorcery and for leading Israel astray and enticing them into apostasy. And I was really happy to find that. Because what sorcery is, is code word for is miracles, right? Which means that there's an acknowledgement here, even by them, even post his death by a lot, that this man really did do miracles that this, this so-called man really did work wonders in front of them, and so they were compelled to call it sorcery, because otherwise there'd be no rational reason for it, and they knew that they couldn't deny that it happened, which means that it was, it was a compelling thing for them. But these are the people he appointed to safeguard the people, to teach and to instruct, to offer sacrifice, and to guide them in the worship of the true God, which is himself. And Christ enters into the trial, and a false high priest ends up convicting the true high priest. The priesthood of the Jews and the priesthood of us is only a symbol of Christ the high priest. Right? There is no priesthood in and of itself. Any priesthood comes from the authority of only God himself. And the most telling moment to me is that moment when our Lord answers the high priest and the servant of the high priest slaps him and says to him, how do you answer the high priest like this? And here we see the, like, the, the deepest humility of Christ. Right? He didn't say, I'm the high priest. He didn't say, this is my temple, right? You, you, you work for me. That priest is my priest. He actually answers to me. He doesn't answer to anyone else. I am his God. I am his creator. And yet he accepts to be beaten and abused by the servants of his servants. What's really going on in this night, and I'm sorry for for taking you guys too long with this is there's a major reversal happening in creation where Christ is rectifying and fixing what Adam did right we talked about the prophecies I'm not going to re-go through it but the beginning of our problems began in a garden and so Eden is the place of God where they dwelt together. That's where the old man was. The new Adam comes to Gethsemane, to a garden, a place of familiarity, where Christ is again dwelling among his people. The old man betrayed God. The old Adam betrayed God in the garden. And the new Adam was betrayed in the garden. Adam was formed as an earthly man 
whereas the new Adam is coming to reform the spiritual man. Adam, when he sinned in the garden, hid from God. Whereas here we see our, our Lord as the new Adam not only doesn't hide, he initiates to Judas and the soldiers and says, who are you looking for? He proclaims the truth, he doesn't hide from them. Adam hid from God, whereas Christ, the new Adam, doesn't hide. Adam brought darkness into the world through his sin. And our Lord is in Gethsemane bringing light in the darkness. Adam needed to be called by God. Adam, when he hid, needed God to say, Adam, come forward. Where are you? Whereas Christ, as the new Adam, because he's done no wrong, isn't waiting to be accused, he proclaims the truth to the very people who are in front of him and says who he is. Because of the old Adam, the Garden of Eden was closed. With the new Adam, paradise is once again opened. The old Adam blamed his wife immediately when he was held accountable for his sin. Yet our Lord defends even the soldier and the soldiers coming to arrest him in the garden. He doesn't make, he doesn't accuse anyone, he, he justifies them, even, even does a healing for the very person who desires only to have him killed. Adam blasphemed God and Christ was blasphemed. And many people wonder, we say that he spoke not before his accusers, he did speak. He was mostly silent. But when the Jews asked him, one question he answered. But when they said you blasphemed and you made yourself equal to God and you did this and you did this and you said this in the temple, Christ was silent. And what some people might not understand in his silence is because Christ is the new Adam. Christ was taking on what Adam, the first Adam, did. And so Adam, as all of humanity, stood on trial this night before the Sanhedrin. And man was guilty. That is why Christ was silent. Because man did blaspheme God. Because man did put himself in the place of God. And man did lie. And so our Lord took the blame silently and said, I accept your guilt. So Adam defended himself, but Christ remained silent. Adam was compelled to die, whereas Christ, the new Adam, voluntarily died. Adam brought death, and Christ brought life. Only one thing did our Lord answer consistently. In the garden, before the Sanhedrin, and before Pilate. When asked who he is, he said, I am. Yahuwah. He identified himself as God. When the Jews in the garden fall flat to their faces, it wasn't because Christ did a miracle. 
they fell down and worshipped because he said the name of God, which was blasphemy to them. And so they all came down trembling because he had said the name of God. And he spoke it and he said it with boldness. And that's why when the old Adam was on trial and was silent at his accusers for where Adam, the first man, was guilty, he spoke boldly when they said, Are you this person? And he said, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the gate. I am the way, the truth, and the light. I am the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. These are the great I am's of God throughout the Gospels that in saying I am, he proclaims. This I am is not a man, the I am is God. Glory be to our God and to the age of ages. Amen.